Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Thursday, June 4th. I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, joined by Carl Cannon, our Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor. Mr. Cannon, how are you this morning? Well, I'm still here, although they're starting to lift the lockdown in Virginia. Um, how about there in Illinois? It seems like, Carl, the lockdown is officially over now as we have protesters flooding the streets, not really social distancing. Uh, you know, some of them and maybe even most of them are wearing masks. But, you know, we were told for weeks and weeks and weeks that we could not go out in public in groups of more than 10 uh, or even at all. And now that seems to be sort of off the table. What do you make of that, Carl? Is this, uh, is this hypocrisy? Is this oh, a double standard? Yeah, it's a double standard. I don't know if it's hypocrisy, but I, I saw, you know, like a huge crowd. I think it was in London. I don't even think it was in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like thousands of people. And I thought, wait a minute, if they can do that, why can't I go to a baseball game? I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your mind goes to what's most important. Uh <laughs> The starting of the baseball season. So, Carl, let's talk about. Uh, I want to talk about this this op-ed that Tom Cotton uh, that ran in the New York Times and seems to have set off this furious backlash within the New York Times newsroom. You had all these uh, reporters that were tweeting that the publishing of this op-ed put black New York Times staffers at risk. Um, and the editorial page editor James Bennett went on Twitter and and sought to explain it in a series of tweets. Uh, basically, you know, trying to placate uh, this revolt that's going on inside the newsroom. Uh, once again, Carl, this is a situation where you've got folks, uh, you know, liberals who used to be in favor of free speech once upon a time. Um, now, even on the editorial page, which is supposed to be sort of this refuge for even at liberal papers, it's supposed to be a refuge for, uh, you know, uh, difference of ideas. And, and we certainly take that to heart at Real Court Politics. I mean, we post stuff uh, you know, variety of opinions every single day from across the political spectrum. But in the New York Times newsroom, uh, that that is no longer acceptable, apparently. Well, Tom, I edited two stories, two columns in the last 12 hours. I didn't agree with either one of them, particularly, but I helped the right. But I helped my view in each case was more nuanced, but I helped the writers strengthen their argument, take out a couple of ad hominem references, but, <laughs> right. but I help them strengthen their argument and make their point. And I, you know, that's what journalists, especially opinion journalists used to think, you know, was a good thing to do. The, there's two things about that. The first is having journalists as censors is something I still haven't got my mind around yet. And I don't, I, that's a, maybe a conversation. We should just talk about that itself another day. But, but the, the thing going on, those tweets from the Times, the reporters at the Times and writers at the Times who objected to it were, I feel, I Tom Cotton's editorial, which was that we should have militarization to quell these riots. I, again, not my view, his, but the idea that speech is violence. While actual violence was taking place in the streets, that wasn't violence. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of a post-Orwellian world. And, you know, we, we need to keep our terms clear. You know, to me, a... a, a a newspaper editor ought to be able to say to his staff um, and Dean Piquet, who's African-American and has you know, won all the awards you can win, can certainly has the credentials to say, say, listen, if you don't believe in the free expression of ideas, you probably shouldn't work at this newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not going to happen. We understand that now, Carl. That's not how the game, the game is no longer played like that. Uh, but there does seem to be this again, and we've talked about this before, I'm shocked by 
the folks on the left who are sort of rushing headlong, Nancy Pelosi criticizing Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren talking about Zuckerberg shouldn't go on, on Fox News because it's a, you know, a hate machine, um, literally wanting to shut people down, the president's Twitter accounts uh, or any of his social media, um, really squelching speech seems like the opposite of what we need. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's it's cacophonous. I mean, that's kind of, especially in this day and age with social media and all that, but, you know, that's what the, the country was founded on, this idea of, of listening to, to other viewpoints, even if you disagree with them vehemently. Well, I, yeah, you mentioned, you said folks on the left, but actually the, the left has always had an uneasy relationship with freedom of speech. And in, in Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels say that controlling the media is one of their first things they do. But Nancy Pelosi is not a person of the left. She's a she's the Speaker of the House of the oldest political party in the world. You're going to get some emails on that one, I think. Maybe. I, she's an establishment <laughs> politician. And she has herself used the, the, you know, expressed dissent. She said very critical things about George W. Bush and the Iraq war. And, and she said critical things about Republicans. Nobody's ever said that she should be silenced. I don't think it's a sustainable position for the Democratic Party to hold. And I and I, I agree with you, but I, I think people should be more careful. The far left is, is nudging the party in a different way, but Pelosi ought to stand up to it. She knows better. All right, last question, Carl, which is how does Joe Biden navigate this? I mean, he has, uh, you know, he's got to walk this fine line between he's got to be in favor of, of obviously, uh, as, as I think most people are, you know, finding some way to get justice for George Floyd, address, addressing police brutality and, and those sorts of injustices. But not I, I'm not sure he can go out and be publicly supportive of, of the rioting and looting and destruction. Um, even as you said, there are folks in the media who are saying, look, uh, you know, violence, what's taking place, the looting is not violence. Uh, you know, the killing of black men is violence. And, and let's not let's not morally equate the two things. That's what Nicole Hannah-Jones, the uh, New York Times, the author of the 1619 Project, said uh, on, on television the other day. So ha, does this put Joe Biden in a bit of a pickle or not really? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn that question around to you, what Biden should do. I haven't, th I haven't thought of that enough. But I'll, I'll say one thing before I do that. I think the Democratic Party should lead a conversation on police reform. But if, if, if the conversation goes to race, that seems to me more kind of a feel-good thing that I don't think that gets you anywhere. More whites are killed every year by police in this country, significantly more, twice as many, two or three times as many as blacks every year. So I, but we have a policing problem. And you know, the Washington Post knows this better than anybody else. They've done the reporting. The Justice Department doesn't even collect the data of how many Americans are killed by police every year. We thought it was five or 600. It's a thousand. We know that because of the Washington Post. But most of the, and, and a plurality of those people are white. So I think we do need to have a police conversation on policing, and I think the Democrats could lead that. Um, but as for Biden, what he should do, what do you think? Well, here's here's the problem with the leading on police reform, and this is this is where I think Democrats are in a bit of a bind, is that you've got a lot of the mayors of these big cities that are in charge uh, are have been are Democrats, and these cities have been controlled by Democrats for decades. Um, and the other problem that is central to police reform is the police unions and protecting these officers, this sort of blue line that exists, right? Where you got a guy like 
the the cop in Minnesota who've been you know had seventeen or eighteen violations, and it's it's almost like the teachers unions. You can't fire the bad apples. You can't get them out of the system, and so they would have to really break up the police unions. And maybe that's something Democrats are willing to go, or maybe that's a precedent that they don't really want to set. Either way, it's going to be hard because that's a very entrenched institution. If Joe, yeah, but you, you you asked about Joe Biden. This is a good example. If Joe Biden wanted to say we need to reexamine the power of police unions, I think he would be, I think he would get he would be hailed on both sides of the aisle. I think that's a that's an idea that needs to be discussed. And Joe Joe Biden doesn't have to have you know a fifty seven point plan. He has to he has to introduce some themes into the conversation. That could be one he could do. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll leave it there. Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief, executive editor for Real Clear Politics. Thank you. See you soon. See you next week. I'm Tom Bevin, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, and this has been the RCP Takeaway for Thursday, June 4th. Mm-hmm.